G'day everyone, this is Darren with the SOARcast. Today we've got a great show. We're interviewing Chris Strasbaugh of Ohio State University, and we're looking at the images that can, that can be produced using multiple images from drones. We'll learn more about that in the SOARcast, so join us today. Thanks for joining the SOARcast, where we talk about drones, and aircraft, and satellites, and how they relate to geospatial products found on the SOAR platform. Welcome everyone, and welcome to the SOARcast. I'm Darren, and today we're talking to Chris Strasbaugh of Ohio State University. And we're talking about, of course, drones, but we're talking about the images and what you can do with those images um, that come from your drone leading on. So Chris, it's really good to have you. Where are we speaking to you from today? Well, uh, right now I'm in uh, very snowy uh, Ohio, uh, Columbus, Ohio, in the United States. So uh, it's a it's a nice evening here where you're probably feeling much better than I am. That's true. I won't tell you what the temperature is outside, but uh, needless to say, it's technically bikini weather. So um, not for myself, but um, <laughs> it is quite warm out. But it's good to have you. I might lead in a little bit with uh, how we how we met, how we hooked up, um, and um, and why we're talking today. So uh, back in November of 2019, we released Soar mm-hmm. Plus, which is our um, map image and um, and raster image uh, sharing platform within Soar. And at the show, uh, this was the commercial UAV show in Las Vegas. I met Chris, mm-hmm. and Chris um, comes from, of course, uh, Ohio State University. It's quite interesting. I, I did a little bit of uh, research on your background, Chris. Um, maybe it, it'd be good to uh, tell us, give us your, your title, uh, what you do at, at the university, um, and, and specifically, how does that relate to drones? Perfect. So uh, I've been at the Ohio State University for almost four years now and have uh, been inside the Knowlton School, uh, which is uh, architecture, landscape architecture, and city and regional planning. So uh, a very creative place um, and is very focused on location and place and space and uh, very different scales as well. Um, They didn't have a drone program when I arrived, and I just kind of lucked that I had some photo background. Uh, Also, uh, love uh, technology. And uh, I love those questions that come up where a faculty member might say, wouldn't it be great? And in this case, wouldn't it be great to be able to capture some site images uh, from above so the students could get a different scale, a different perspective that they wouldn't normally get? And uh, luckily, uh, after doing some digging, I'm like, I think I can do one better. And all of a sudden, I can create maps that are accurate and geo-referenced, but I can also create those 3D models since I know they all work inside this this 3D arena uh, where students uh, are are generating 3D models uh, from at, at least two of the three programs. 
And so I uh, uh, picked up a pilot's license and at that point uh, uh, a Mavic Pro uh, just to kind of start doing our, our testing. And uh, in the last uh, two and a half years, uh, we've been doing sites uh, that vary in scale from, uh, you know, an acre or two to a two and a half mile uh, road corridor uh, to, to study uh, uh uh, poverty disparity and transportation networks, um, starting to work in multispectral and 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 thermal. So it's it's really taken off. Uh, my role there was uh, the digital resources archivist and curator. And because of the success, uh, we also have just recently escalated this program to the the College of Engineering level. Um, and I'll be taking on an educational uh, technologist uh, next month as well. So uh, it's a lot of exciting exciting things that have been going on. Yeah, well, no, that's that's good, Chris. And it gives us a bit of, um, uh, I guess, a bit of perspective about um, how you came into it. Um, because, um, you know, I like I said, I did a bit of uh, research um, kind of on your uh, academic profile. And, it, and I can just share with um, the audience, here's some of the titles of things that uh, Chris has authored or contributed, been a part of. Um, is a presenter for a um, presentation Marrying Drones and VR slash AR with Pix4D in the Classroom. How we harness the potential of UAV imagery in the classroom through VR and other technologies. Moving from drones to AR, VR in the classroom. And the list goes on. Um, so you've, you've, it's interesting you came from purely the uh, photographic perspective. I know you have a, a bachelor's in photography. And, and mm -hmm. with that technical knowledge, you've... Um, really sort of um, had, you know, leverage that tech technical knowledge um, in drones. It's interesting also that you have used multiple platforms. Can you just list the, the drone platforms that you've worked with? So the drone platforms that I've worked with, so we started out with a, uh, the DJI Mavic Pro, the first gen. Uh, then we bought a second one and hacked that one uh, to try to work with a uh, FLIR uh, Duo R. Um, we picked up a third Mavic Pro, uh, the the Alpine version, and then we took our very first one and uh, sent it to Sentara to add the NDVI sensor so we could start doing some ag work. Um, I've been playing with the uh, Peridonafi uh, Thermal. Uh, I that will save that discussion for another day, and ultimately we are now moving towards the uh, the Wingtra uh, for both uh, RGB and um, uh, multispectral for for some of our large scale sites. So uh, touching a lot of different things. I've also flown the the M two hundred and two ten. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I haven't met a drone I, I haven't haven't enjoyed, and. I don't know if it was um, a link associated with a paper you were on, but have you done anything with um, the, the sort of cage or uh, indoor drones, the Elios drone? I haven't done those. We've been starting to play with some of our indoor. Um, we had a symposium actually uh, a few weeks back uh, where the 
It was kind of this this idea of the anxiety of uh, the smart future. And so the original idea was they wanted to have a drone flying indoors over the the crowd area uh, while the presenter was presenting. So they also wanted that live stream. So we we uh, picked up a Mavic uh, Mini because of the cages um, and uh, found ways of uh, hacking that to do live streaming, which turns out that uh, Zoom, the, uh, the web conferencing software, is absolutely amazing and was able to uh, stream from the iPad as a uh, screen capture. So uh, that Mavic Mini wasn't designed for it, but uh, it definitely, definitely worked. Uh, we didn't do it during the presentation because, believe it or not, it makes a lot of noise uh, when you're flying indoors during presentation. So uh, we found uh, other ways to, to get it to work. But no, I, any, any of these uh, indoor caged ones have a lot of relevance because we spend a lot of time flying indoors uh, for, for uh, doing some photography of student presentations and stuff. Wow. Sounds like you're touching on quite a few bases. Um, I think, yeah, but what I had in mind um, was that we would, um, we, I'm going to draw a bit on your um, photography knowledge um, in terms of image acquisition and quality um, and I, and even using some of the uh, the desktop uh, image st- stitching or the Mosaic software. Um, mm-hmm. And then we're also going to look at ultimately um, the products, you know, the end game. What do we do with those images and, and, and how do we get value out of those? So um, I think most, most of the people here have, have heard about, of course, the Mavic, the Mini Mavic, the Parrot, Anafi, um, even the M200 and M- M210 large commercial sized drones. The Wingtra is quite interesting. Um, just tell me, uh, what, what is that drone? What's it like? So the the Wingtra d- drone solves a lot of our problems. So it is a vertical takeoff and landing fixed wing drone. Um, I have been in the market for uh, a, a fixed wing because of the scale uh, architecture. That program really focused on small scale, just site uh, specific. So maybe a couple of acres or a few acres max. Um, landscape architecture starts getting bigger, uh, where their sites can actually uh, take place out in the fields around water and uh, it can be upwards of a thousand acres and then when you start talking about city and regional planning uh, which is uh, our, our first big projects were actually through through that section um, those can be thousand two thousand long corridors and also in an urban environment so you couldn't really do it with a uh, multi-rotor um, because you would just have too many flights. The battery just drains too fast. Um, you couldn't necessarily do something like an EB, a standard fixed wing, because first of all, the the controlled crash landing, uh, there's just going to be uh, too much wear and tear on those. Uh, and not to mention, uh, when you're in an urban environment, it's just not safe trying to find a landing pad uh, for a regular uh, fixed wing. Um, and then, so the, the vertical takeoff and landing is kind of marrying the best of both worlds. I looked at the, uh, the Firefly 6. 
genetics. In fact, uh, one of our researchers over in anthropology uh, used a couple of those down in Belize for a uh, deforestation uh, and slash and burn uh, project he was doing. Um, and uh, while he liked it, he says it, was, it might not be necessarily the best tool. Wing trudges come came in. I saw them also at Commercial UAV. Um, and then also they did a demo at one of our very difficult sites, a partnership we have with uh, Columbus Metro Parks with a converted uh, quarry, uh, including, you know, large scale quarry walls and lakes and, and forested areas. And it tackled 425 acres uh, with uh, a two centimeter accuracy, a really small ground sampling that we haven't even come close to. And it did in two flights in like two hours. Uh, so that kind of got me hooked, got me sold on this idea that uh, the major limitation of that drone is just how far can I see it. And it just happens to be orange and a bit larger. So I can see it even further than, uh, say, some of our smaller drones. So uh, the Wing Trail one, I'm really looking forward to uh, finally getting it in my hands. Uh, we already have projects, uh, especially dealing with uh, agriculture. Uh, and our landscape architecture uh, d- uh, is very tied to changes over time and tied to a growing season. So uh, my hope is to actually probably do about five to six flights over the growth season of a number of different spaces in Ohio and maybe some surrounding areas like uh, uh, there's a site in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania as well that uh, that I'm looking at. So uh, the wing trail just had, had a great sense of scale. It's a very smart and intelligent uh, uh, it also keeps the payload in an enclosed uh, a payload section, um, and it also handles wind. Even though it's a giant, uh, uh, basically uh, almost a fiberglass-like uh, uh, surface, uh, it's very intelligent to turn the proper way into the wind so that it can kind of cut through when it's landing or taking off. But it's definitely something to see. I, I, I can't wait to get it in my hands. Oh, that's awesome. Um, you know, when you threw that stat out, 425 acres and two batteries, I, uh, I did, um, gosh, it was only 160 acres with my, uh, with a Phantom three. Um, and that was, uh, four batteries. Actually, it was only 120 acres. And so I'm thinking four times, you know, roughly four, that's, uh, 16 batteries and all the, uh, all the lag time in between, you know, you're going to be looking at changes in the light. Um, you're, your tablet's probably going to die in the meantime. So, um, yeah, when you want to scale up, I, I think that certainly, um, you know, the fixed wing and the VTOL, um, are gonna, are gonna definitely take care of those problems. Just quick question. What, um, do they put a retail price on the wing chair or a ballpark price? Uh, so again, uh, this is one of those areas where I am very lucky to be in an educational institution uh, because of a, a usually a good discount. Um, but I, you're going to be looking with their uh, 42 megapixel standard uh, Sony payload somewhere in the ballpark of like 30 to 36. 36. I just don't know what the the uh, discount exactly was that I got. Uh, they also have a 24 megapixel uh, version. But me, the... The, out the door, we're also getting the one with the uh, PPK uh, as well. So uh, I, I didn't want to start marching around 425 acres laying down ground points. So uh, PPK to the rescue for that one. All right. So Chris, you're, you're mm-hmm. uh, well-versed in, in, the, in, the, in the field of, of photography and um, 
you know, have been doing, and, and even you were in um, self-employed or, or running your own business in that space. Um, and so you've, yeah. you've got a real intimacy with, um, thanks laptop. Um, <laughs> anyhow, it's my laptop speaking to me anyway. Um, so we want to, we want to explore a little bit about your knowledge of, of photogrammetry. And I understand photogrammetry is making okay. measurements, uh, from photography, but it, it expands further into drones and the photos that they take. So, um, can you tell us what is photogrammetry? Well, let me boil it down because uh, oftentimes a, a lot of the questions I get are from people that have absolutely no idea. They might see the end product and they're like, whoa, how did you do that? And so basically uh, what photogrammetry is, is just taking a bunch of photos that have a, a very strategic overlap. And so it, the uh, software at the end basically takes a whole bunch of photos, kind of lays them out where where they should go and says, okay, this this little uh, spot right here, I saw that spot in multiple different um, uh, photos, and then it kind of glues those together. And so basically from one, one photograph and then a combination of multiple photographs is creating one large photograph by merging them all together using those common points. Now, it's not just about getting a really big photo. Um, um, it also allows you to do cool things when you start adding that uh, location information in as well. All of a sudden, you're able to measure things because it knew where the drone was, it knew where the picture was, and you're able to say that this fence line, just like I was measuring in my backyard uh, this weekend, um, I know that my fence uh, is 120 feet, and I'm going to need this many pickets in order for me to replace that fence. Um, but the other cool thing about the software, like I use, there's a lot of different software products out there that do this magic work. Um, I use Pix4D, which is pretty much the industry standard, um, though uh, Drone Deploy does some great work as, as well as a few other uh, uh, groups as well. Uh, but not only is it creating a geo-referenced uh, uh, map uh, or large photograph, but it also creates a 3D model. And for for us, that's been incredibly useful as we're able to put that in the hands of students so that they can actually uh, plop their their project on. So let's say they were doing a, a, a downtown Los Angeles project in the, the tar pits. Uh, all of a sudden, they have an accurate uh, model of that site that they can actually design to the the topography of so basically you're just taking a bunch of photos but the software using the location of the drone is able to put those all together and you can create measurements you can do 3d modeling uh kind of the sky's the limit especially when you start adding different data layers like multi-spectral or thermal so simple as just taking a bunch of photos and, and gluing them together is really what photogrammetry is all about you just got the thumbs up from the drone father. He's sitting, he's our producer and he's sitting in the room. Yes. And, and, um, yeah, I'd like to say the light bulb went off. Dan, Dan, Dan and I have similar experience in using drones and, and mapping and, and he's done more commercial work than I have. Um, but if you ask us to explain it, um, yeah, we would, uh, we're very good at putting people to sleep. So thanks for that, Chris. <laughs> No problem. Um, so going on, going forward, the the standard for these these images, um, these orthomosaics, or even these surface models, or um, or uh, multi spectral imagery, is the geotiff format. Um, 
Correct. Which which is uh, a great format. Obviously, it suits its Massive. purpose. It's the file that those applications that you mentioned, Drone Deploy, Pix4D, Open Drone Map, whatever the tool is, that's the output. That's the standard output. Um, you're right. you're uniquely in the data presentation space. Um, you know, going mm -hmm. off your your profile, so you're well versed in that. But um, these images, I, I just want to get a sense of um, how you how you would use those images. But I also want to share with the audience um, how you got to that point. So obviously, you've spent a lifetime in this space. But even from your start of of working with drones um, to where you mm -hmm. are now. Where are you using those output images and how long did it take you to sort of work out a method? Well, this this is a great question because uh, I again I've been I knew the photography I knew a little bit about the flying, but as projects are coming, one of the problems that we started discovering is how much data uh, the this takes. So, uh, for instance, when I was doing uh, some of our starter projects, it was only ten uh, acres. Uh, it wasn't that many photos, and so you know it outputs for a geotiff maybe maybe around a gig. And, and everyone can manage really a gig even from a laptop. Well, fast forward a little bit, and all of a sudden when we were doing 2.4-mile corridor um, at 160 feet with, uh, with a Mavic 1, all of a sudden these files are getting into uh, 4 to 8 gigs uh, for that. And then we're merging different projects together, and it's becoming a major drain on the system. Let alone we were working with one of the community groups and they're like, oh, we'd love to be able to, to have these resources that we could reference. And you, you give them a, a 8 to 10 gig file and all of, a th all of a sudden things just shut down. They don't know how to work with it. Um, so GeoTIFF is a really powerful tool, but it has some major limitations um, as well. So we've been kind of looking for these types of solutions, especially because a lot of what we do is not just working with inside our research groups and inside uh, with students, uh, but we're also working with outside uh, research groups, whether it's community uh, groups or Metro Park systems. So um, this kind of sent us down a, a path of, at first we were just sharing uh, geotiffs and hoping that they could open it. Um, and then that's kind of where where I ran into uh, to SOAR. Uh, and uh, I, I like to say that uh, I saw something in SOAR that was different than what it was maybe designed for. Um, uh, specifically, this could be the big solution of being able to have an online platform that was much more open than the cloud storage that Pix4D provides, but I could send out a link to... Uh, the uh, Milo Grogan uh, community group, but at the same time, all the other groups, and they could all go in and start accessing the data, zooming in, seeing details and measuring. Um, GeoTIFFs are still a problem, but at the same time, uh, there's there's different applications. Um, uh, there's something from uh, SAFE uh, that allows it to go into either JPEG2 um, or what is it, what is it uh, that... that that you guys like the ECW is that the format that uh, has been so successful? It's a good, it's a great format, but it has um, it has uh, commercial um, implications, I guess. So GeoTIFF being yes. um, uh, kind of open source works for everyone. That's why the software app companies like to use it. ECW is proprietary, 
and it requires um, off-the-shelf software to convert it to that format. So um, you're looking at I, it. I, I, yeah. Again, I love being in the educational space, but at the same time, some of these software, um, first of all, getting it into a format that could be digestible to your clients uh, is absolutely huge. Um, but at the same time, uh, JPEG 2 is a very interesting uh, format as well. It's compressed data, like an ECW, um, but at the same time, it also uh, has the uh, geo-referencing built in as well. So that's a, that's an area that's going to be next on our list. Um, but uh, I also love this idea of uh, where we're, we're playing right now is this idea of data stacking. Uh, so you have the, the one field uh, of wildflowers that uh, is going to be a three-year project. We're going to go out and fly it uh, six times a year um, using multispectral and RGB and thermal. And so all of a sudden you have all of these different maps showing different types of things over time. And uh, the only place I've been able to see where you can really stack things well, uh, you can't do that in Pix4D's cloud. You can't do that in Drone Deploy's cloud, uh, at least not yet, um, is in SOAR. And being able to see those those layers and being able to select the layers um, has been super useful. So next step is for us to see uh, which format we like to go out first. But yeah, GeoTIFF are, are very unwieldy. Uh, you really need an online platform that, uh, that can host these, and more importantly, that you can actually share and exchange these data, no matter how large the data set is. Well, thanks, Chris, for that. It, it's, um, you've uh, given me a lot of ideas in terms of um, things that we could do with a platform, and I would be very keen to see um, you know, multiple data sets. So um, we're using RGB cameras, <clears throat> and um, there, there's a number of formats you can get from that in terms of um, stitched imagery, your, your orthomosaic, your photograph, um, mm -hmm. you get a terrain model, and a, a ter so terrain being the ground surface, but also a, a surface model. So the things like the trees and the buildings, you can get the elevations from that. But um, and you can also yeah. do um, what I call uh, visual um, NDVI. And so probably another yeah. topic for another, you know, um, discussion. But <laughs> of course, normalized density uh, vegetation index. What does that mean? Well, it's a way whereby you can use the infrared and the red and green um, spectrum, you know, visible or parts of the um, the light spectrum to to derive the, the, the relative plan health. And um, so mm -hmm. you can also do that with RGB, but I, um, it's not using the infrared. And so you're not measuring how much infrared light is being reflected by the plants. So it's a little bit of a cheat. <clears throat> but anyways, when you get into the, the multispectral, you're capturing that, that light that um, mm -hmm. the human eye can't see. And the combinations or algorithms um, are really sort of endless in terms of um, what you can derive from those. So... I've seen it right. done for things like um, vegetation typing, um, you know, spe species identification. Um, it's also used, I'm a geologist, so it's used even in, the, it works well in the, uh, the remote sensing space. So from satellite imagery, certain minerals um, will reflect in more in certain, um, yeah, in certain paths of the uh, light spectrum. So you can actually do mineralogy uh, from space, if you will. And we have a, um, one of our uh, clients using 
she's she's mapping with a drone in the mine, mining regions of northern Canada, and she's actually using the um, just the uh, terrain models for texture mapping. So because they're they're capturing mm. every four centimeters or every two centimeters, she's able to pick out subtle variations in the uh, the rock surface that are telling her where um, mineral lineations are or where quartz vein is and that type of thing. You know, and this is all on the hillside on the side of a hillside that she's not going to walk up. So, um, yeah, the I think thanks for pointing out that um, the actual data that's underlying these images is, is in a way um, unlimited. Furthermore, if you open up the light spectrum, so you go into the multispectral cameras, um, you can see uh, you can just do so much more. So um, one thing I wanted to um, just get your your knowledge on was um, compression of images and and just to highlight the benefit of, of say a geotiff image so um, I know that the image um, there's things called lossless compression so can you tell us what's what happens when you go from say a tiff image to a JPD a JPG image so the JPEG-2 is uh, specifically designed uh, as the lossless uh, compressed. So it doesn't. So originally the JPEG format just uh, threw out data for the the uh, the compression. So you know, once you threw out data, you could never get it back. Uh, whereas a JPEG-2 or even a a, a TIFF uh, uh, lossless. Uh, compression. Uh, they use algorithms to know what pieces you pretty much threw out, and then that way it can reconstruct the data um, after the fact as well. So lossless just means that you're never losing the data, you're just temporarily hiding it uh, from it so that that way uh, when you need it again, you can just kind of pull it back out with uh, using specific software. Um, JPEG-2 hasn't seen as wide of an adoption as expected, considering the format was called JPEG-2000. And here we are in 2020, and uh, we're still looking for a wider adoption of uh, the JPEG-2. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's any less useful. Um, I really think that uh, it has some potentials uh, in this space because it, it is a, a pretty sizable compression um, without losing the data. Um, and it also sits in a, a wider uh, area of uh, being able to be ac accessible in Photoshop, for instance. Uh, now, saving it is a different yeah, story. Okay. There's still well, some thanks, things thanks, that we're Chris. working out. It's, um, uh, both in mm -hmm. oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's, um, <clears throat> that's right. Sometimes the audio, um, I don't know, it's recording everything, but sometimes I don't hear the audio. So I didn't mean to, to jump in. Um, well, oh, so no thanks. problem. Yeah. Well, so thanks, Chris, for, um, you know, for giving us a lot of, um, I guess, insight and, and technical knowledge about uh, images captured by drones, what can be done with those images, um, what are the applications we use, and furthermore, um, how, do we get, how do we get value out of those? Um, how do we um, deliver those images to people, or, or, or what's our target audience? So, um, we don't always let our guests off that easy. Sometimes we like to have a little bit of fun with our guests. Sometimes we do a bit of trivia. And knowing your background in uh, photography, I came up with a little bit of Wikipedia knowledge. So, um, no stress. Okay. You're not on Let's the see what I can do. You're, you're not on the spot. 
Um, do you know which company format w developed the TIFF format? Uh, honestly, I'm going to stick with the uh, Eastman Kodak uh, company. Well, that, I, I think that was a good guess um, for those of you who don't know what Kodak is. Um, <laughs> the company that was in photography for a long <laughs> so time. So old school. The company's name, uh, actually, the company was later acquired by uh, Adobe, but the company, the original company's <sighs> name was Aldis Corporation in 1986. Well, before, really? Yes. Um, but they didn't they didn't kick off. They were short acquired by Adobe shortly thereafter. Um, another trivia question on the uh, TIFF format. What okay. type of equipment did the TIFF format originally serve? Oh, well, I'm not, I, I can't go for the obvious. Obviously, you, you'll want to say uh, uh, digital cameras. Um, you're close. I, is it going to be video? Very well. Um, it's it's more in the digital photography. It was scanners. So in the beginning. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. In the beginning, um, everybody had their own proprietary format. And this was the one that seemed to, uh, yeah, work, work, the, work the best. You, I'm 0 for 2 so far. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Um, this is an easy one. What type of image compression does, does the TIFF format involve? Lossless or I don't know. What's the opposite of lossless? <laughs> lossy. Lossy is what, uh, I'm going to say, uh, lossless and that's why it's a, a preferred archive, but also because you uh, didn't know what the other term was. So that made it easier for me. Yeah, I, my uh, out, they're they're gonna be looking a lot longer for uh, Alex Trebek's replacement. It won't be me. Uh, <laughs> trivia question about TIFF files: Can TIFF support layered images? Can Can you say the? Can you repeat the question, Alex? That's fine. <laughs> can TIFFs support layered images? Uh, yes, it can. Okay, TIFF images for 400. What does TIFF stand for? Oh, no. I, the, the, my cutoff for remembering this is about 7 p.m. my time. So uh, could, you, uh, could you help me with this one? Okay, this, we will move on to the multiple choice. Does TIFF stand for... <laughs> okay, perfect. Does TIFF stand for <clears throat> tagged image file format or... Thousands of incompatible file formats. <laughs> uh, the second one sounds appealing, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go with my gut and go with uh, A. Uh, sounds perfect. Very well. Um, okay, this 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 is a bit of um, you can. This is a multiple answer question, meaning if you throw out one of them, you'll get it right. So, GeoTIFF files are TIFF files that have a geo-referenced geo element there that allows them to be uh, displayed and correct placely, cor pl correctly placed on a map. What mm -hmm. is some of that geospatial information? What, what types of geospatial information would be included? Uh, your, well, first of all, your Latin longitude, uh, but also the, the, uh, the altitude. So it's X, Y, Z. 
Okay, yeah, you definitely got that. Other things that other acceptable answers would include projection system, coordinate system, the ellipsoid, and the datums. So I, I picked the easy ones. Which is all you need to know. Okay. Next <laughs> trivia question. <clears throat> Who developed geotiffs? And I'll give you a hint. Oh. It was your countrymen. My countrymen, too. Oh, uh, uh, I have no idea. Geotiffs were really, really intelligent people. <laughs> That's true. Uh, Geotiffs were originally developed by NASA, specifically in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory Division. This makes so much sense. Um, they deal with a lot of imagery data. Of course, yeah. Um, okay, and what year did the OGC, which is the Open Space Geospatial Consortium, publish the GeoTIFF standard? Was it A, 2005, B, 1995, C, 2009, or C, September 14th, 2019? Uh, we are going to go with A. Well, I forgot what all the answers were, but A sounds great. Okay. Well, according to Wikipedia, the, I should have said, which is, well, I, I think it's a bad question because actually it's probably the latest standard, which would be September 14th, 2019. So I, I suppose uh, you were pretty specific. I should have just gone with that. Well, it's the, aren't you glad you're not in, uh, you're not a, you're not a student anymore. It's nothing worse. Uh, yes, because because I would be hoping for a really good curve on this exam. <laughs> um, okay, this might be um, a bit of a. Um, there's something called cloud optimized geotiffs, which is uh, a recent mm. I guess phenomenon um, that I wasn't aware of until about 11 p.m. last night. <laughs> what is the purpose? Okay. What is the purpose of cloud optimized geotiffs? Well, my guess is so that it performs better in the cloud. So it's probably better with bandwidth and artifacting. You're quite yeah. You're quite spot on. So one of the, yes. one of the things that um, we've we've been I don't know discussing and and sort of um, on the on the subject was. What do you use to visualize these geotiffs? And so your your standard GIS uh, uh, desktop software, your QGIS, your ArcGIS, those types of things, they do that quite readily because that's that's what they were designed mm -hmm. for. But um, I guess the the issue was that they were they were having issues uh, displaying. You can't use a browser to display a geotiff. If you try to open a geotiff in a browser, it might. Uh, I haven't tried it. Might might show you the TIFF file. Um, because you know many image editing formats um, actually can open a GeoTIFF file, but they don't have it anywhere um, on the Earth. So the purpose of optimized right. GeoTIFF, um, cloud optimized GeoTIFFs, was yeah specifically for handling on the cloud, um, probably optimizing them for bandwidth. Uh, you're right, and then also correctly placing them on the Earth. So that is the end of the the, the trivia, Chris. Um, I didn't score and don't feel bad. It's all stuff I learned, but it's always fun to, um, 
yeah, to test to test a bit of knowledge. And in fact, that's probably I, I the now most know academic about the uh, cloud, uh, cloud optimize. Sort of, so this is something new for me. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I just want to say thanks, Chris from um, from Soar. And uh, thanks to, um, you know, the work you're doing at, at OSU. And also thanks for being an early adopter, um, as well as a bit of an advocate. My for, pleasure. Yeah, for SOAR Plus. And um, some of the, the good news that um, we'll be, um, I guess, rolling out in the platform is, is, is the current um, methodology for sharing images on SOAR Plus is, is sharing a, a username. is basically you share a link and then the, the user logs into the system and we're looking at ways to make that public so even in the um in the in sort of the academic or or public facing space where you're doing work for the for the general public and they need to see that information we're looking at ways to mm -hmm. just make that information uh immediately publicly available so so stay tuned to this space but moving on chris well, i'm always happy to help and and do anything you guys need very good well moving on chris it's been great having you and thanks for being part of the sorecast well, thank you so much for this opportunity. You guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. And that's all we have time for today. Tune in to our next SOARcast for more discussion on geospatial products and imagery found on SOAR.